In my school, the senior class always goes on a trip the last week of high school. So next week, our school will be one-fourth quieter while they're gone to Puerto Rico. How exciting. And hearing them talking about the trip over the last few weeks made me realize, you know, I know almost nothing about Puerto Rico. I mean, that's not totally true, but everything I know about Puerto Rico came from the song America from West Side Story, and it's quite possible that those aren't super accurate. So then it occurred to me that if I know almost nothing about Puerto Rico, then you may not either. I mean, no offense, but my assumption is that I know more about social studies than you do because, well, if not, then why are you listening to me? It can't just be for the dad jokes. Today, we're talking about the island that's halfway part of the United States, Puerto Rico. What was going on there before we showed up? What has been the relationship between the U.S. and the island, and what's going on there now? And don't worry, there will be more than one West Side Story reference. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in, and let's get some historical context on Puerto Rico, or to be or not to be a state. Act 1. Ugh, Columbus again? So the island of Puerto Rico was inhabited almost 2,000 years ago by the Taino people. They lived mostly as hunter-gatherers in theocratic small kingdoms on the island, occasionally fending off attacks from neighboring islands in the Caribbean. But, as with most places in the Americas, they were unable to fend off the Spanish. Christopher Columbus arrived on the island in 1493. He had learned about the island from a few Taino prisoners he found on a nearby Antilles island, and he agreed to return them home, a weirdly generous act for the guy who basically started the slave trade. But, I mean, obviously it wasn't a humanitarian mission. When he arrived, he promptly claimed the island for the Spanish crown, because 15th century politics worked on a very strict dibs system. And he named it San Juan Bautista, for St. John the Baptist. Initially, the island was coveted just as a military outpost to stop off on the way to more profitable Spanish colonies. But about 15 years later, Juan Ponce de Leon was allowed to explore the island, and he discovered a few primo attractions. One, he found naturally protected bays that would be perfect for harboring ships. Oh, and he also found gold floating in the rivers. So that was pretty exciting. He named the city he founded Rich Port, or Puerto Rico. But eventually, the name stuck for the entire island. So, I mean, they basically switched the names. San Juan, which was the original name for the entire island, became the capital city, and Puerto Rico, which was the original name for the city, was used for the entire island. Because conquistadors can never get the names quite right. Just ask the Indians. Speaking of the Taino, it should be noted that they did rebel and resist this colonization, but they were outmatched by the Spanish. When the first permanent European settlers came in 1508, they estimated that there were around 20 to 50,000 natives on the island. By 1544, just about 35 years later, a bishop counted only 60 left. During that decimation, most of the Spanish agreed that it was better to bring new workers to the island rather than try to utilize the dwindling native population. First, they brought native slaves from other islands, but eventually they used mostly black African slave labor to build their mining and agricultural operations. Similar to many other Caribbean islands and Latin America in general, Puerto Rican heritage today is incredibly complex. Bloodlines and culture today have evolved from centuries of European, indigenous, and African influences. Although most of the Taino natives were wiped out, many of the towns across the island still retain their original indigenous names, 
And they're still working infrastructure from the pre-Columbian communities. All around the bioluminescent bay, for example, a place my seniors are visiting, especially in the area of La Parguera, there are canals still used today that were originally carved out by the Taino to protect against flooding during the hurricane season. Cool. Other aspects of Taino culture are still alive as well, not just in Puerto Rico, but around the world. For example, the Taino gave us the name for the hammock, or hamaca, and it's also theorized that the Taino invented maracas, now ubiquitous in Latin music. Other common words that originated with the Taino include iguana, barbacoa, and appropriately, hurricane, or huracan, which meant the big blow in Taino. African influences are also readily seen in popular musical styles on the island. Bomba, not to be confused with La Bamba, developed through contact between African slave populations from different Caribbean colonies, creating an intricate style with at least 16 different rhythms. Heavy on percussion, this music could do a lot of things. It conveyed anger and sadness, it inspired slave revolts, and it created a sense of community through dance. Out of this style came plena, which is more lyrical and narrative. Plena songs describe popular and current events, and some musicians have called it the newspaper of the people. So it's kind of like when Jimmy Fallon slow jams the news, but like everyone in the country was listening and the music was better. So actually, it's not really like that at all. Let's just move on. These musical styles of bomba y plena rooted in African culture eventually produced reggaeton. Combining hip-hop and reggae rhythms with Spanish rapping, it is a quintessentially Puerto Rican creation. The style originated in the underground club scene in the 1990s and was popularized first by rappers like Daddy Yankee decades before Despacito. Okay, but that's fun, but back to Spanish colonialism for just a second. By the mid-1500s, Puerto Rico was mostly valued as a military outpost for the Spanish. Gold production was declining, especially compared to the massive silver mines in Mexico and Peru. So fortresses were built around San Juan, making it essentially impossible to conquer. Just ask the French, or the Dutch, or the English, who all tried to conquer it, but couldn't. And think about the importance of fortifying the city of San Juan. I mean, this was the first port of call for massive Spanish galleons entering the Americas. And it was the last stop before those same ships, loaded down with treasure, would make the perilous journey across the Atlantic. The current city of San Juan is actually not typically built on top of the old town, but it's just been an expansion out to the east. And so it's cool because travelers can still visit an estimated 400 original structures of historical significance just in San Juan alone. A continuity throughout Puerto Rican history is that the capital of San Juan received a ton of attention and support from Spain. However, outside the fortified walls, the rest of the island and the people living there were essentially ignored. So a divide grew between the people of San Juan, mostly European and wealthy, and the Jibaros, a rural inhabitant from the more mountainous interior. These figures grew to be folk legends in Puerto Rican culture, kind of in the same way that Wild West outlaws continue to fascinate U.S. Americans. So Puerto Rico continued on as a military outpost and a small but growing cash crop producer for a few hundred years. And by the early 1800s, revolutions were rippling across Latin America. Mexico was gritoing in Hidalgo, Bolivar and San Martin were riding horses and rebelling in South America, Brazil was granting itself independence to avoid a bloody slave revolt like in Haiti. Smart. And the Spanish Empire was crumbling, which begs the question, why not in Puerto Rico? The simplest answer to this question is that Puerto Rico did rebel. I mean, we'll talk about it, but their rebellions were typically small and not very successful. So why did they not have a national revolution like other Spanish colonies? The main reason is that the island of Puerto Rico was just typically granted more freedom than other parts of the Spanish empire. 
The reason for this, as with most things in history, starts with Napoleon. So when Napoleon conquered Europe and put his brother on the throne of Spain, this led most Spanish colonies to form independent governments to rule on behalf of the true king while he was in prison. This spurred many local organizations across Latin America to gain power, and it prompted them to push for full independence instead of returning to Spanish rule. But in Puerto Rico, they were just mostly an economic colony concerned with trade. And as we'll see in a second, the island was also mostly populated with Europeans. All they needed from the king was administrative and military assistance, and so they continued to follow the crown. Because of this, the relatively underpopulated island became a refuge for Spanish loyalists fleeing the revolutions on the mainland. So over time, Puerto Rico was rewarded for its loyalty with an easing of imperial control over the island. The other reason Puerto Rico didn't have a full-scale rebellion was because of its demographics. In 1815, the Spanish crown passed a decree to encourage immigration to Puerto Rico. Essentially, mercantilism, remember, which meant that you could only trade with the mother country, that was relaxed so that Puerto Ricans could trade with other nations as long as they were allies of Spain. Read Catholic. What this meant was that other Catholic nations built up trade relations with Puerto Rico and immigrants flooded to the island. By the end of the 19th century, 80% of the population of the island was foreign-born, mostly from Europe. And since the Spanish crown had eased up on their restrictive trading policies and given the Puerto Ricans some ability to control their own economic fate, they were not as incentivized to rebel as others. And they also didn't have the cultural aspect of rebellion like in mainland Latin America. For example, Mexico's revolution was intrinsically linked to the indigenous population trying to upend the casta system. And even the South American revolutions were led by Creoles who were resentful of those born in Europe who dominated politics. But in Puerto Rico, the indigenous people were long gone, the majority of the inhabitants were born in Europe, and because of the decree, they were all Catholic and loyal to Spain. So, again, not much reason to rebel. So over the course of the 1800s, Puerto Rico was slowly gaining more independence while remaining a loyal colony of Spain. There were periods of time when Puerto Rico was allowed to elect its own representatives to the Spanish Cortes or Parliament, and they ruled to revoke the absolute powers of the island's colonial governor, but most of these periods of reform were short-lived. In general, as with most colonies, the growing reforms and constitutionalism that were happening in Spain did not extend to Puerto Rico. By the 1860s, a variety of opinions had formed on the island about its future within the Spanish Empire. There was a conservative bloc that was fine with staying with the status quo, mostly concerned about economic opportunity. The majority pushed for more representation and inclusion in the government, hoping that Puerto Rico could elevate its status beyond just a subservient colony to become more of a part of the Spanish government. And there was a growing minority advocating for complete independence. Pay attention to this because this exact same debate is happening again today, but concerning the fate of Puerto Rico as part of the U.S. empire. So in 1865, a local commission was appointed to survey the population and recommend government reforms that would keep the people happy with the crown. And the number one issue they found was the abolition of slavery. Although Spain itself had abolished slavery in the 1700s, by 1865, slavery was still well entrenched in their main colonies of Puerto Rico and Cuba. Side note, it's really easy to abolish slavery when your economy doesn't depend on slave labor, but it doesn't really mean much if you still allow slavery in the places you control that do. This recommendation to abolish slavery led the leadership to freak out and start a conservative crackdown, fearing these radicals who thought that, I don't know, maybe slavery was bad? Keep in mind that 1865 is a full 30 years after slavery was abolished in all the British colonies, and it was two years after the U.S. issued the Emancipation Proclamation, so it's not like they were leading the charge or anything. So out of this divisive issue came the short-lived 1868 Revolution. 
Although the rebellion really only took over one city and eventually led to all participants being imprisoned, the revolution did prompt Spain to look more closely at Puerto Rico. This rebellion came at the same time as the early Cuban War for Independence. And so Spain, who was starting to freak out that their last few island colonies were now rebelling, they started to pass even more reforms to keep Puerto Rico happy and on its side. They abolished slavery in 1873 and granted Puerto Rico a more constitutional government. The point of all of this is that by the end of the 1800s, the people of Puerto Rico were beginning to benefit from their centuries of compromise and loyalty, and they were on their way to becoming a semi-autonomous state under the Spanish crown. But they didn't really get the chance to see if that could work, because a ship exploded near Cuba. Remember the Maine? Yeah, you don't, but Teddy Roosevelt sure does. Long story short, the U.S. had been eyeing Cuba, another Spanish colony, for a long time. And Cuba had been fighting the Spanish for independence for about 30 years, and they were really close to winning. Then, mysteriously, a U.S. ship accidentally exploded outside Havana Harbor, and the U.S. used that as justification to go to war with Spain. They said it was on behalf of the Cubans, but let's all be honest, it wasn't. Teddy Roosevelt rode up a hill and became a hero, and the U.S. won. Woohoo! Out of that Spanish-American war, the U.S. gained control of Spain's colonies. Cuba, oh, they were so close to independence. Guam, the Philippines and Puerto Rico. And the Puerto Ricans, after a long struggle to work within the confines of imperialism to gain some level of sovereignty, had to go back to the drawing board and start all over again with a new mother country. Ugh, imperialism is exhausting. Act 2. Puerto Rico and the U.S. Okay, so in really basic terms, these are a few key moments in U.S.-Puerto Rican history that inform the current status of the island. So after the Spanish-American War, in 1900, the U.S. passed the Foraker Act, which established the framework for the new Puerto Rican government. The island would have a governor and an 11-person council, all appointed by the U.S. president. The island also got its own House of Representatives and judicial system, and they got a non-voting representative in the U.S. Congress. So since the beginning, the island has been somewhere halfway between a colony with zero rights and a full state. In 1917, things got even more complicated as the U.S. granted Puerto Ricans citizenship just months before declaring war on Germany and entering World War I. And it's a common misconception that the U.S. only granted Puerto Ricans citizenship so that they could be drafted to fight. But that's actually not true. It's important to note that at this point in military history, the idea of fighting for your country was this huge honor that should be reserved only for the, quote, highest members of society. So a lot of my students always assume that, for example, the American government would want people of color or people from the territories like Puerto Ricans to go fight. But it's actually the exact opposite. They thought that that was an honor reserved only for white American men. So the original draft law excluded Puerto Ricans, who were already citizens, but they fought back and demanded to be included on the principle of equality. The U.S. really granted citizenship to Puerto Ricans mostly to shore up support on the island before we entered the largest global conflict that we'd ever seen. With German U-boats prowling the Caribbean, there was fear that our overseas colonies would be impossible to protect without the active involvement of the inhabitants of those islands. So by granting them citizenship, the U.S. gave them a larger stake in the outcome of the war, and specifically, a U.S. victory. President Wilson was also in an awkward spot. I mean, he had built his career and his presidency on preaching to the world about democracy and self-determination, and yet, he presided over subjugated colonies. 
Not to mention the fact that citizens of color and women also couldn't vote. Like, there's not much to self-determine there. He figured that by granting citizenship to Puerto Rico, he might look slightly less hypocritical when he went and wagged his finger at European imperialists at Versailles. In addition to citizenship, the Jones Act also created a Puerto Rican Senate, a Bill of Rights for the island, and the official position of resident commissioner. This is an elected representative that serves as the voice of Puerto Rico in the U.S. Congress. We'll talk more about that in a second. Before we move on, I just want to point out that on the first day of draft registration at the beginning of World War I, over 100,000 Puerto Ricans signed up. Think about it. Most of the island didn't even have paved roads or cars, but local volunteers worked for months helping to organize the process. And by the end, almost 240,000 registered, although eventually only 18,000 were accepted. As the war went on, they had to pressure President Wilson to create a Puerto Rican division and allow them to fight. So while the Jones Act was a step forward, in reality, it did little to expand Puerto Ricans' right to rule themselves on any level. The governor was still appointed directly by the president. He wasn't elected by the people. And the administration on the island was way more interested in developing economic opportunities for American companies than allowing full participation by the people. Early governors of the island spent most of their time promoting Americanization without much concern for other political desires. And it's true that from 1900 to the 1930s, the economy of Puerto Rico overall benefited from being a U.S. colony. Sugarcane was now inside the U.S. tariff walls, and they now had a massive market ready and willing to buy their product. As the island adopted the dollar, foreign investment poured into Puerto Rico, sparking more modern agricultural practices, advanced technology, and corporate management. Not to mention the increasing standard of living as rates of disease plummeted and health and sanitation standards increased. Good things. However... You know there's always going to be a however with me. I can't just leave it at, there were good things. While the overall economy and standard of living grew, the gap between the haves and the have-nots widened. By 1939, three-fourths of the population of Puerto Rico was involved in some way in the production of sugarcane. And this is efficient from a global perspective, but this also means that an island of people can't feed itself. They grew more dependent on imports of basic necessities, and they were reliant on the fluctuations of the global markets. Also, American corporations were buying up more and more land. By 1940, 80% of the arable land on the island was owned by mainland Americans, forcing many small farmers to seek out new opportunities. As happened around the globe, World War II sparked another conversation about rights, nationalism, and the problems with empire. Apparently, it took Hitler for the West to be like, you know, maybe imperialism isn't great for the people who were conquered. What an idea. The same conversations occurred in Puerto Rico as a growing debate emerged around options for its future. Are we fine with the situation as is? Do we want to become a U.S. state or do we want full independence? Arguably the most extreme advocates for full independence was a group called the Nationalist Party. Formed in the 20s, they pushed, often violently, for a complete break from the United States. They began by attempting to organize workers and demand workers' rights like a minimum wage, but it soon grew into an armed independence movement. And the best example of the interactions between the Nationalist Party and the U.S. government center on an event in 1935 known as the Rio Piedras Massacre. So in the early 1930s, the governor of Puerto Rico was none other than Teddy Roosevelt Jr. He was a Harvard-educated businessman and a decorated war hero from World War I. Side note, Teddy Jr. would go on to win the Medal of Honor for leading the first wave of soldiers ashore onto Utah Beach during the D-Day invasion. Like father T.R., like son T.R., But in the 1930s, he was also known for being implicated in the now slightly boring Teapot Dome scandal. 
During his time as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he had helped Interior Secretary Albert Fall lease Navy oil fields to private companies for personal profit. That's not really allowed. Fall became the first American cabinet member convicted of a felony and sent to prison. Whoa. Now, this matters for Puerto Rico because when Teddy Jr. became governor, one of the first things he did was appoint the first Puerto Rican to be the chancellor of the University of Puerto Rico. His name was Dr. Carlos E. Chardon. Chardon worked for the Liberal Party, the opposition of the nationalists, and he worked to develop a New Deal-style plan that would reform and reorganize the agricultural industry on the island. He was working very closely with the U.S. government. And I mean, this was all fine, but the nationalists, especially their leader, Pedro Albizu Campos, was worried that this was a ploy by the U.S. government to take control of Puerto Rico's natural resources and sell them off to the highest bidder. And I mean, to be fair, this is the height of the age of imperialism, when European powers are doing this exact thing all over the world. And also, the U.S. government had routinely done this with native land, Mexican land, and even just 10 years ago, U.S. Navy land. But also, to be fair... It doesn't look like that was what was happening in Puerto Rico. Regardless, the Nationalist Party organized a protest at the university. Local police fired into the crowd and killed four Nationalist Party members in the process. When asked at a press conference why this happened, the police chief said that if Albizu Campos and his Nationalist Party continued to educate the workers and the college students, that he was prepared to wage war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. Over 2 million declassified documents from the FBI show that there was a decades-long secret battle by the U.S. government to undermine the Puerto Rican independence movement of the 40s and 50s. We'll talk more about that in a second. The U.S. government went beyond covert operations. Eventually, the nationalist leader was imprisoned on sedition charges for 10 years, but when he returned to the island in 1950, the government quickly imposed Public Law 53, or the Gag Law, to prevent another attempted rebellion. Everyone on the island was prohibited from flying the Puerto Rican flag, singing nationalist songs, or speaking, writing, or meeting about independence. Apparently, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Puerto Rico. Oh wait, that's actually real? Ugh, we'll get to that in a second. When a nationalist uprising occurred in Utuado, the National Guard sent warplanes and strafed the town, making it quite possibly the only time in American history when the U.S. military launched an aerial attack on its own citizens. So all of this is to say the U.S. really didn't want an independent Puerto Rico. And okay, because a lot of Puerto Ricans didn't either. At the same time, other parties were rising that were advocating other solutions short of full independence. The PPD was the most dominant party from 1948 to 1968. They focused less on political questions of the status of Puerto Rico and more on economic reforms like redistributing land, establishing a progressive income tax, and providing for the poor. Honestly, the fact that their slogan was bread, land, and liberty, and the fact that they redistributed land in Latin America during the Cold War and they weren't murdered by the CIA should tell you how much the U.S. wanted to retain control of Puerto Rico. In 1946, President Truman appointed the first Puerto Rican governor. Whoa, what an idea! A Puerto Rican to govern Puerto Ricans. And the next year, Congress allowed the island to vote for its governor. Whoa, democracy! By 1950, Truman signed the Puerto Rico Commonwealth Bill, which gave the island more power to determine its own domestic policy. They established their own constitution and were classified as a self-governing territory by the United Nations. For his efforts, Truman survived an assassination attempt by Puerto Rican nationalists, and a few years later, four nationalists fired weapons from the viewing gallery into the House of Representatives. But in general, most people on the island seemed okay with the increasing connection between the island and the United States. 
Mostly, this is because a continued relationship with the U.S. was pretty good overall for the Puerto Rican economy. Easy access to cheap labor and attractive tax laws, all while technically remaining within the U.S., made the island a growing destination for manufacturing. As an example of the scale of these corporate tax benefits, in 2017, the U.S. government estimated that corporations based in Puerto Rico paid $1.4 billion in taxes. But had Puerto Rico been a state, corporations would have paid an estimated $5 to $9 billion. With the growth of industry, combined with foreign agricultural companies buying up arable land, many workers left the sugarcane and coffee fields and moved into the cities, where there were jobs with higher wages and slowly improving working conditions and social services. After World War II, once air travel became more available, a lot of young Puerto Ricans also just picked up and moved to the United States, especially New York City. But I mean, you know this because you've seen West Side Story. Cool. Act 3. The Future of Puerto Rico. Okay, this history is all great, but like... What is Puerto Rico? Well, according to the Puerto Ricans, it is, quote, the free associated state of Puerto Rico, while the U.S. calls it the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Basically, it's somewhere between an independent country and a state, and it depends on who you ask, what it is, and what it should be. It's really complicated, so let's oversimplify it. Essentially, Puerto Rico has three options for its future. First, it could push to become an independent nation. Like I said, this was a much more popular idea earlier in the 20th century before the U.S. built so many economic ties to the island. And also, it didn't help that the FBI had that entire program called Cointelpro that was designed to infiltrate, discredit, and disrupt the independence movement. The local police created thousands of carpetas or files detailing the personal lives of any individual involved in the independence movement. Overall, about 75,000 people were under police surveillance in the middle of the century. Anyway, that made most people not super excited about calling for independence. According to some of the most recent votes, only around 5% of the population today wants full independence. A more popular option is essentially the status quo. This is often known as the Commonwealth option because it means keeping its current status as a Commonwealth of the U.S., Most who support this option still believe that some reforms should be made to improve the relationship, but effectively they want things to stay mostly the same. So what does that mean? What is the current status of Puerto Ricans? Okay, first, are Puerto Ricans citizens of the United States? Yes, great. So that means that they're also protected by the Bill of Rights, right? No. Wait, what? So the Bill of Rights explicitly protects the rights of states and the people living in states. So since Puerto Rico isn't a state, its citizens, again, they are full U.S. citizens, are not automatically covered by the Bill of Rights. When an issue relating to the rights of Puerto Ricans comes up, it has to make its way through the courts or be decided by Congress. Today, they're basically covered by, quote, fundamental civil rights that prevent discrimination by other U.S. states. They can travel freely, and they've clarified that they now have other rights, like the First Amendment, that had to go through a Supreme Court decision. But all of those things, their citizenship and their rights, are granted by legislation or court cases. They're not enshrined in the Constitution. This matters because laws and court decisions are way easier to strike down or revoke, but amending the Constitution is nearly impossible. So Puerto Ricans definitely qualify as second-class citizens in this aspect. Next question. Can Puerto Ricans vote? Sometimes. They're allowed to vote in the presidential primary, but not in the general election. 
So they can help decide who becomes their party's nominee, but they can't actually decide who the president is. And they don't have any representation in Congress, except one person who is there as a non-voting representative. It's called a resident commissioner, and currently it's a woman named Jennifer Gonzalez Colon. She identifies as a member of the Republican Party, and basically she can propose legislation, she can vote at the committee level, and she can participate in debates, but she ultimately can't vote on any final legislation. Finally, do Puerto Ricans pay taxes? Sometimes. Citizens who live on the island are typically exempt from paying federal income taxes, unless they're a federal government employee, and about 20% of them are. All federal taxes are generally way lower on the island, which provides incentives for businesses to move their operations there. But Puerto Ricans do pay some taxes. In 2016, they paid $3.5 billion into the U.S. Treasury, including paying into Social Security, for which they're eligible when they retire. So... To sum up, currently, Puerto Ricans are citizens who are kind of protected by our basic rights. They can help choose their party's nominee, and they can speak up in congressional debates, but ultimately they can't vote on the final decision, for president or for legislation. They can serve in the military and are eligible for the draft, and they pay some taxes, although generally less than other American citizens. And although they can collect Social Security when they retire, they typically get less in other federal benefits like Medicaid or disability. Also, they are severely limited in their interactions with other countries. As a commonwealth, they don't have any autonomy over international diplomacy or involvement in Caribbean affairs. All of those issues get funneled up to the U.S. government. So, increasingly, more and more Puerto Ricans have wanted out of this American halfway house. In the last two island-wide votes, the majority has voted in favor of statehood. Which brings us to another question. How does one become a state in the United States? So first, a state can't be created without a territory's consent, which is why the votes held on the island over the last decade have been really important. 2012 was the first year that a majority of voters chose statehood on the ballot, which is why this issue has been more prevalent the last few years. The next step would be to petition the U.S. government for statehood, which they have done. In 2018, their representative filed a bill co-sponsored by 21 Republicans and 14 Democrats. So now, Congress could pass legislation to admit Puerto Rico— And assuming the president signed it, they would become the 51st state, and flag makers everywhere would have to figure out how to make 51 stars look symmetrical. Side note, Washington, D.C. has also voted to become a state. They also don't have voting representation in Congress, and it wasn't until 1961 that D.C. counted in the Electoral College and could vote for president. That is crazy to me. The capital of our country, named after our first president, couldn't vote for president until 1961. Anyway, so it's a race between D.C. and Puerto Rico to see who will snag number 51. It's the Jets and the Sharks all over again. Don't worry, I won't do any more snapping. Okay, that's great. But what would happen if Puerto Rico did become a state? So one of the main arguments in favor of statehood is that it could help Puerto Rico restructure its growing debt. Currently, only states can declare bankruptcy and get extra support from the federal government. And currently, Puerto Rico has more debt than any of the 50 states. And Obama did allow some restructuring, and he commissioned an advisory board to help revamp their budgetary crisis, but it's still not quite the same. Statehood would also increase access to federal programs like Medicaid and disability funding, and low-income workers could qualify for tax rebates. However, those workers would get a rebate because Puerto Ricans would now be paying all federal taxes. It's estimated that they would pay an additional $2.3 billion in new federal income tax alone, and corporations would see an increase of $5 billion in new corporate taxes that they had been exempt from. 
this would remove pretty much the only incentive a lot of businesses had for moving their operations to the island or offshoring in the first place. So there's the possibility that some might move elsewhere. Also, just logistically, the transition to statehood would be difficult, especially considering that government on the island has a history of mismanagement. In 2009, they received $7 billion from Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act without really seeing much improvement as far as aging infrastructure and a lower standard of living than the mainland U.S. In general, the strongest arguments in favor of Puerto Rican statehood are based on rights, rhetoric, and American values. One journalist called it, quote, a one-sided form of American citizenship that makes Puerto Ricans subject to some of the most egregious and pervasive ongoing civil rights violations of this century, quote. To many on the island, this became clear in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, when they seemed to be an afterthought to many Americans and politicians, but more on that in a second. On the other side, the strongest arguments against accepting Puerto Rico as a state are economic and cultural. It would cost the U.S. government billions as federal programs expanded to cover everyone on the island. And yes, the government would get more in taxes, but it would also fully take on the island's debt, although the U.S. really has to take on Puerto Rico's debt either way. Statehood might just cut through some of the red tape involved. And there are those who are concerned with how culturally different the island is from the rest of the United States. It would be the first fully Spanish-speaking state, which is difficult for some Americans to wrap their head around for some reason. I mean, we basically already have Spanish-speaking states, just come on down to Texas. But even on the Puerto Rican side, there are concerns with assimilating into the U.S. and losing some of their independence, which is an important aspect of their heritage and Puerto Rican pride. And even as Puerto Ricans become influential in larger American society, like Ricky Martin or Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, they identify very closely with the distinct culture and heritage of the island. So it's really a tricky discussion on both sides. For what it's worth, both the major U.S. parties say they support Puerto Rico, but they also say a lot of things, am I right? According to their 2016 party platforms, Republicans say outright that they want to admit Puerto Rico as a state, while Democrats, as usual, are a little loftier and a lot more vague. They say they support the island's right to self-determination, but even if they choose to remain a commonwealth, the U.S. needs to reform its relationship with Puerto Rico to expand rights to its citizens. And not that we normally care what the rest of the world thinks, but internationally, most other countries view Puerto Rico as its own country. It's like when Americans go to the Bahamas. It's just the Bahamas. They don't think of it as visiting part of the British Commonwealth, although it is. It should also be noted that the international community, most notably the UN, is not super into the weird on-the-side relationship the U.S. has with Puerto Rico. In 2016, the UN Special Committee on Decolonization called for the U.S. to allow Puerto Ricans the right to self-determination, essentially arguing that without that, the U.S. was simply just another colonizer. I mean, you know I'm not going to argue. You've heard my episode on imperialism. So what's going on in Puerto Rico today? Well, let's just say that most people on the island are less concerned with congressional legislation and more concerned with, oh, you know, electricity. On an island where 44% live in poverty, compared with 12% in the U.S., Hurricane Maria was devastating. It was the strongest hurricane to hit Puerto Rico in 100 years. Making landfall in September of 2017, it killed almost 3,000 people, destroyed entire towns, did $90 billion worth of damage, and is still heavily impacting the island. A year after the hurricane hit, tens of thousands of people were still living under blue tarps that were designated as, quote, temporary roofs, and many even lost access to FEMA's temporary housing because of a federal court decision. And it's moments like this that highlight how crucial it is that Puerto Ricans are not really protected by the Constitution, but by laws and courts that are a lot flimsier. 
More than 62% of applicants for FEMA assistance to rebuild their homes were denied because they couldn't produce the proper paperwork. FEMA also required people to submit applications for assistance online, even though the island was without electricity. FEMA officials first sent to the island didn't speak Spanish, another sign of the enormous cultural divide between the mainland U.S. and Puerto Rico. This cultural divide is a huge barrier to a true union between the U.S. and the island. According to a survey done in the wake of the hurricane, only 54% of Americans know that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. So many saw the hurricane and its aftermath as a really sad event happening in some other country, instead of a domestic disaster the same as Hurricanes Harvey or Sandy. So now you know. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Our seniors at least knew that, because when our school administration let them vote on where they would go for their class trip, they specified that it had to be in the United States. And the seniors found a loophole and chose Puerto Rico. Nicely done, seniors. You definitely paid attention in social studies class. (laughs) 